Amen, amen. Let's show our appreciation to those children's ministry workers. Bless you. All right, well, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, Acts chapter 2. We, uh, we're going to jump back in this morning to our series in the book of Acts. We took a little break last week for Thanksgiving. Uh, two Sundays ago, you may recall that we were looking at the event of Pentecost as narrated for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Jesus had told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And of course, then on the day of Pentecost, the appointed day, the Holy Spirit fell And the disciples rushed out into the city and began preaching the gospel in languages that they had never learned. They began preaching the gospel in all the languages of the Mediterranean world. That was the miracle. And this speech that follows that we're looking at today is Peter's interpretation of the miracle. You remember that uh, at the end of that little narrative, someone from the crowd makes a ridiculous suggestion. They said, you know, maybe, maybe the disciples are just filled with new wine and Peter offers this explanation by way of alternative. Now, we're just going to read the first section of, of Peter's sermon today. We'll come back next Sunday, and we'll zoom out and kind of look at the sermon as a whole. Uh, but this first section is so explosive. You'll recognize it as soon as you see it. It's so explosive and also so controversial that if we tried to deal with the full 27 verses, if we tried to deal with Peter's sermon in total, uh, I think inevitably we would end up with something unbalanced. And, uh, and, and also just think that we just need to let what Peter's saying today sit. Uh, sometimes if you try to cover too much, nothing settles quite deep enough. And so today we're just going to let this first section sit, and then we'll come back next week and look at the whole sermon in one go. All right, so hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was offered through the prophet, or what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in response to the guy from the crowd who said, you know, maybe the disciples are filled with new wine, Peter stands up and says, no, no, that's not it. This is not about wine for crying out loud. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, That's not what's going on here. This unique phenomenon that we've all just observed is not about wine. It's about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is about the dawning of the last days. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, helped by the Holy Spirit, interprets 
the falling of the Holy Spirit as the fulfillment of a prophecy made a long time ago through the prophet Joel. Now, in the book of Joel, there had been a terrible locust infestation that the prophet understood as kind of a warning shot, a shot fired across the bow by Almighty God. God was sort of saying, if you don't respond to this, then I'm not just going to send you know, locusts. I'm going to come in a, in a more powerful way, and I'm going to wipe you right off the map. And so the people responded appropriately, and then the Lord turned to bless and prosper them. And then comes this prophecy in Joel 2 about what will happen afterward. At some point down the road, the prophet says, the people of God are going to be lifted up through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the enemies of God are going to be cast down in a climactic season of judgment. And in that season... In that time of upheaval, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this is that, Peter says. I. Howard Marshall says here, Peter regards Joel's prophecy as applying to the last days and claims that his hearers are now living in the last days. God's final act of salvation has begun to take place. So Peter, reading the prophet Joel, says to the crowd in Jerusalem, what's going on here is that a page has been turned. From this point forward, we are living in the last chapter of the story of redemption. God's final act of salvation has begun to take place. And the main actor in this last chapter will be the Holy Spirit. And now in this first section of his sermon, interpreting these great events, Peter begins to tell us what the Holy Spirit has come to do, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. The first thing that he has come to do, according to Peter, is to make prophets out of all the true people of God. That's the the, the first idea. You see that for yourself very clearly in verses 17 to 18. He says, and in the last days, so we're in the last chapter, you're turning the page. Let me tell you, let me give you a little advanced preview of this chapter. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Well, this is that, Peter says. What do you think just happened? What do you think those tongues of fire were? How do you think we started preaching to you in languages we had never learned or studied? This is that. He's pointing to that prophecy in Joel. He's connecting it. He's pinning it to that event on the day of Pentecost. He's saying, this is the long-awaited end times outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, interestingly, that prophecy in Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, actually goes back to something that Moses said way earlier in the Old Testament timeline all the way back in the book of Numbers. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God, in the book of Numbers, God told Moses to pick representatives from all the 12 tribes of Israel. God said, it's, it's too hard for you. It's, it's, it's too much for you to be the only leader, the only inspired leader. It's a dangerous thing when only one person in a community hears from God, isn't it? By the way, if you ever go to a community where one person says they hear from God in a way that you don't, run for your life. But God says to Moses, it's, it's, 
it's too much for you to be doing this. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick representatives from all the 12 tribes. They're going to gather together. We're going to take some of the spirit that is on you, and we're going to put it on them. And they'll prophesy as well. So, of course, that's what happened. The spirit fell on the men that had been chosen. But then something very interesting happened. The spirit also fell on two other men who had not been chosen. And they started to prophesy as well. And some people were concerned about that. Joshua went to Moses and said, my Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Listen to this. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. By the way, can, can anyone in this room say amen to that? Well, that's a trick question, isn't it? Moses says, you know what I'd like? I'd like it if every true believer was a prophet. Moses said, I would like that. Anyone here like that? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Yes. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if the spirit of God fell not just on the leaders of the covenant community, but on the whole covenant community, on every person, man, woman, and child, rich and poor. Wouldn't it be amazing if every stone in this living house was filled with the Spirit of God? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Moses said that, and the people remembered that, and a prophet named Joel picked up on that. He said that in the last chapter, he said, that's going to happen. In the last chapter of the great story of redemption, God's going to do that. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit, not just on the leaders, not just on the special people, but on everyone in the covenant community. Every single person in the covenant community is going to become a spirit-anointed prophet of God. The men, the women, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, everyone. Everyone would be filled with the Spirit of God, able to speak the Word of God with supernatural power and effect. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So that's what's going on here, Peter says. That's what's just happened. That's what you've just witnessed. You have just seen the long-awaited end times outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. David Peterson comments on this incredible turning point in the story. He says, so the gift of the Spirit is for all who are truly God's servants, both men and women, whereas the Spirit especially designated and empowered the prophets and other leaders of Israel Under the old covenant, God promises that all his people will be possessed by the Spirit in the last days. This is that. Now, obviously, we have questions. I I have questions. You have questions. Some of you have concerns. I understand that. A concern is a question with alarm associated with it. I get that, right? We have questions. What exactly is a prophet? That's a good question. What, what is the difference between New Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophecy? Clearly, there is a difference. That's what we're just reading about. Things are going to be different in the last... Well, what exactly is that difference, we would like to know? What is the difference between a prophet and an apostle? That's going to be important for us to figure out. And how can we know when someone is speaking by the Spirit of God and when they're just blowing hot air? That's going to be important. Those are all really good questions, and we're going to get into all of those over the course of the book of Acts. But for now, I just want you to understand the magnitude of this event. Something absolutely huge just happened. We turned the page into the last 
chapter of the story of redemption. And in this chapter, all of a sudden, every true believer is filled with the Holy Spirit such that they are now having all the power, all the guidance, and all the insight that they need in order to effectively address and advance the Great Commission. That's a big deal. Now, I don't want to back away from that truth just because it is potentially complicated and messy. Of course it is. We've got questions around application. We'll get to that. Lots of content in the Bible around the complicated issues of application. There's an entire book of the New Testament written to address the complicated matters of application, 1 Corinthians. Isn't it nice to know that there were churches that were very messy and complicated? Because then we have corrections given in the inspired foundation of the church. That's very helpful. It's important for us to look at this truth and embrace it, not to back away from it. So for now, I just want you to see this. What we're being told here is that in the last chapter of human history, the Holy Spirit of God is going to fill, animate, and empower the whole covenant community in a way that has never happened before. Children are going to prophesy. Young men are going to have visions. Old men are going to dream dreams. Rich, poor, male, female, it doesn't matter. If they are saved, they're going to be filled, and if they're filled, they're going to be empowered, and they're going to be able to speak. Now, that's not going to lead to complete chaos. At least it's not supposed to lead to complete chaos. There will still be order. There will still be offices. There will still be study. There will still be training. There will still be learning. The Holy Spirit doesn't bypass our humanity. Rather, he animates and restores it. Again, we're going to get into all that. Bottom line, is that because of the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is now moving in the church in a whole new way. That's the bottom line. He's come to turn every believer into a burning bush. He's come to enable every believer to speak the word of God with the help of the Spirit of God so as to form and reform the people of God. Praise the Lord. In the last chapter, in the last chapter of the story, which Peter says we're in now, Peter says, we're in this now. I've I've told you this before. If you're kind of new to how the Bible is put together, the, the apostles consistently speak of the entire era from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ as the last chapter, the last days, because all the work of redemption has been done. This chapter remains, but all the work of God has been done. And so in this chapter, what we're being told is that the Holy Spirit is going to work in the covenant community in a whole new way. And then the second thing we're being told is that in addition to being active in the church in a peculiar and special way, the Holy Spirit is also going to be active in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What in the world does that mean? Look at verses 19 to 20. Peter, again, he's referencing, he's picking up that prophecy in Joel, and he's dropping it down on the day of Pentecost, and he's saying, this is that. So he's referencing the prophecy of Joel, And he cites God there as saying, and, we've got two things going on, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. 
Now, remember, Peter's trying to explain the significance of the events that occurred on the day of Pentecost. And to do that, he's making reference to this prophecy in the book of Joel. Joel said that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the last day, before the event, the the absolute close of human history, before the absolute end, the Holy Spirit would fall and would lift up the people of God and would cast down the enemies of God. And in this time of great upheaval, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. So he's saying that the Lord, the Holy Spirit is going to come in a powerful way and do signs, do things in the heavens and on the earth. Well, what are we talking about here? What does that mean? Joel uses some pretty incredible language, which Peter has, again, just picked up and dropped down into his sermon. Some pretty incredible stuff there. Blood, fire, pillars of smoke, the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood. What in the world are we talking about here? John Stott says very helpfully, this is traditional apocalyptic imagery for times of social and political revolution. Now, we've been learning all about apocalyptic language at Cornerstone U. We're going to be back at that again this evening. There is a language in the Bible that we struggle to understand. It might as well be Italian. It is foreign to us as modern-day English Bible readers But there's a ton of it in the Bible. There is a ton of apocalyptic language in your Bible. You're seeing it right here in Acts. It was borrowed. It was lifted up out of Joel, but it's everywhere. And modern Western readers have a really hard time making sense of apocalyptic language because of our bias towards literal prose, which, by the way, is why modern-day English-speaking North American Christians tend to do such a bad job interpreting the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic language tends to be built upon snippets lifted up from earlier Old Testament stories. And then they're reused, repackaged, as it were, in order to anticipate future events. So we've been talking about this in Zechariah. In Zechariah, a lot of the imagery, there'll be these fantastic visions about weird things happening, measuring sticks and women in baskets and all, just some really interesting stuff. And a crown made out of special materials that is weaving together great themes from the old. It's, it's, it's incredible. He's saying incredible things about the future, drawing upon snippets and imagery from the past. Very commonly, the image, imagery in Zechariah is lifted from two main storylines, the Exodus storyline and the David storyline. So if you think of those as like really big paintings, maybe wall canvases, it's like the author goes and lift some paint, which would get you in trouble at the museum, and, uh, right? But you lift, lift some paint from the canvas and lift some paint from that canvas and then taking that and inserting it into a new painting, a new picture in order to tell a new story. Well, you're seeing very, something very similar here. Uh, apocalyptic language is usually used, recruited to speak about ultimate reality. Apocalyptic language doesn't deal in specifics. It deals in big pictures and determining powers. And that's the situation here. This imagery in Joel is lifted originally from the storyline of the Exodus. Think about all the things we just mentioned. Blood. Blood. You remember that from the Exodus story? The Nile being turned to blood. Smoke. Pillars of smoke. Strange darkenings. All of that is lifted from the Exodus story. This is a way of saying 
that, that in the, remember in the beginning, in the first salvation story, God worked in powerful acts of providence. God sent powerful plagues so as to cast down the powers of Egypt and so as to save and redeem his people. Do you remember that? When we've lifted all that, said that's going to happen again. And that language, that package of images, becomes associated with the overthrow of great powers toward the end of the salvation of the people of God. So it just keeps showing up in the Bible. So, for example, in Isaiah 13, when the prophet is predicting the future downfall of Babylon, he reaches back and scoops again these colors, these imageries from the Exodus canvas. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Well, that's almost exactly what Peter is saying here. Lifting again from Joel. You see the same thing in Ezekiel 32, this time talking about the future overthrow of Egypt. So not the same Egypt that fell in the Exodus, but the future empire of Egypt that was future to the prophet was talking about that. He says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens, make their stars dark. Listen, I will cover the sun with a cloud. The moon shall not give its light. Are you seeing the pattern? In apocalyptic language, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which are, of course, great powers in the heavens, often stand in for great powers on the earth. It is a symbol-laden way of saying that God is going to do mighty works of providence against great opposing powers so as to accomplish his purposes of judgment and salvation on the earth. Now, that's, you feel like, wow, that's, like a, that's a lot of information. Let me show you that you already know this. Even if you don't know, you know this. Turn, consider in your Bible, if you can flip there quick, it's close to the back flap. Go to Revelation chapter 9. We'll show it up on the screen too, but it's helpful for you to see this for yourself. I'm going to show you, you already know this. You, you are intuitively already speaking a little bit of this language. Right? It's like how you maybe know a little bit of Latin from watching TV shows. Right? Semper reformanda, always reforming. Uh, Semper Fidelis, that's the motto for NCIS. Anyone my age or older will appreciate that, okay? You probably already know how to whisper a little bit of Latin. And you probably already know a little bit of apocalyptic language as well. Listen, listen to Revelation 9.1. He says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. I saw a star falling from heaven to earth. Wait, wait a second. Now, is that an actual star? Because if, if John is speaking literally here, if he's saying, I saw a literal star falling to the earth, then that should be the end of the Bible, right? Because that's an extinction-level event. That sentence should go, I saw a star fall to the earth, the end. That should be the end of the Bible if he's speaking literally. But, of course, he's not. And you know that because of how the verse ends. He says, I saw a star fallen from earth, heaven to earth, and he... And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Are you seeing that? The star is a he. That is to say, the star is an angel. He is a heavenly power doing something in the spiritual realm that will affect our experience at ground level in the physical realm. That's how apocalyptic language works. In the Old Testament, when you were talking about suns going dark and 
and stars fallen from the sky and moons turning to blood. You are talking about great moves of providence. In his commentary on the original citation from the book of Joel, David Allen Hubbard says here that these signs and wonders are best understood as clear-cut indicators, clear-cut indicators that God is at work. Their cosmic scope, heavens and earth, highlights their extraordinary character. So in street-level English, when Peter says, the Holy Spirit has come to do wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth beneath, blood, fire, smoke, suns going dark, moons turning to blood, he is saying, the Holy Spirit has come to do great works of providence in the physical and spiritual realm. Just like God overthrew Egypt and Babylon back in the day, so too will he be working to undermine the hostile spiritual, cultural, and political powers of today. All right, so the message here is actually pretty straightforward. Some of the language is complicated. Some of the claims are wildly controversial in terms of how they're applied. But the basic message is pretty straightforward. Peter is saying, in the last chapter, the Holy Spirit is going to be remarkably active in the church and remarkably active in the world. He is going to do everything that needs to be done to position people for repentance, conversion, and saving faith. That's the third thing, or that's the the implication that Peter works out in the third section of this introductory portion of his sermon. Look at verse 21. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's again, that's a lift from Joel. Might be helpful to go back and see that original citation. Let me read it to you. This is from Joel chapter two. I'm gonna read verses 30 to 32. The prophet records God as saying, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. Okay, well, that all sounds Exodus E. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So we're looking forward. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so we've got suns burning out. We've got moons turning to blood, which as I've said, is standard apocalyptic language for staggering spiritual, social, and political upheaval. God is going to shake the entire universe, the prophet says, just like he did when Egypt fell, just like he did when Babylon fell. Once again in the future, God is going to turn the world upside down. He is going to rattle the cage of the cosmos before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you seeing this? Joel is saying that the purpose of all of this upheaval, he's he's saying the people of God are going to be lifted up. The hostile powers of the culture of the world opposed to God are going to be thrown down. There's going to be a great shake, a great overturning, and the purpose of it all is to optimize the conditions for conversion. You know, it seems to me as though Peter spent more time thinking about this sort of stuff than any of the other apostles. There's certainly more of his ponderings on this than there are of the other apostles. Peter seemed to be thinking about some things that I often think about. I imagine you do as well. 
what is the purpose of this delay? You know, as, as last chapters go, this one has been a little long. Wouldn't you agree? I, um, I was thinking of bringing up the, uh, the space trilogy by C.S. Lewis to make this point. Then I, I realized that probably like four people in this church who've read the space trilogy. It's for geeks, and I, I'm one of them, but I don't know if you've read the space trilogy. Anyway, it's an interesting little thing because the first two books in the space trilogy are actually pretty, pretty narrow. By the way, don't be offended if you read the space trilogy. I read it. I hope that didn't offend you. I'm saying you should read it. Look at the person beside you and say, read the space trilogy. Knock it off, okay? But the first two books in the space trilogy are actually very narrow. They're very thin books. And then the last book in the space trilogy is enormous. It's actually bigger than the first two books combined. So just calling something the last chapter doesn't tell you anything about how long it's going to last. But this has been a very long last chapter, hasn't it? It's been like almost 2,000 years. Jesus, Jesus ascended almost, almost 2,000 years ago. That's a long last chapter. And Peter thought about that. What is the, what, why do we even have a last chapter? Peter thought about that. What's the purpose? Because if you think about it, should there even be a last chapter? Do we really need it? After all, Jesus, when he died on the cross, said, it is finished. That sounds like an end to me. It is finished. After all, he, he lived a perfect human life. And then he laid down that perfect human life on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. And then he even rose from the dead three days later to demonstrate and proclaim to the world God's acceptance of that sacrifice. So it is finished. And God likes how it ended. It is finished and God approves. And then he went up into heaven, Jesus did, and he sat down and he's been crowned, given all authority in heaven and on earth. So what in the world do we even have a last chapter for? That's a really good question. And like I said, Peter seems to have thought about it a lot. In 2 Peter 3, he shares his inspired conclusion. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, that sounds like the great and terrible day of the Lord, doesn't it? Interesting, Peter is also the one who said that, you know, remember, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. I'm not sure that the God who exists outside of time has the same sense of time that you and I do. And so Peter says, you know, who knows? Who knows how long the last chapter is going to last? It'll last as long as the patience of God dictates that it lasts. But the purpose of it is actually the kindness and mercy of God who does not desire that anyone should perish. And so he has sent his Holy Spirit to do two extraordinary things. Number one, to turn every true believer into a prophet. Now listen, I understand even just saying that already, there's people here going, I'm nervous about where this series is going. Listen, can I just tell you something? Your job is never to be more conservative than the Bible. Right? The Bible says we're going to need 
Holy Spirit-empowered Bible teachers, preachers, and speakers all throughout the last chapter. We're going to need that. Is that going to be complicated? Yes. Is it going to be potentially messy when people stand up and say, well, I've got a special word and we're going to have to be? Yes. Do you think we have any hope of accomplishing the Great Commission without this? No. So we're going to figure it out. Okay? So first thing he says, the Holy Spirit has come to turn us all into Holy Spirit-empowered Bible preachers, speakers, and talkers. Praise the Lord. And he says, the second thing, he's come to work mighty acts of providence so as to undermine and destabilize the strongholds of ignorance and resistance in the world. Brothers and sisters, that is very, very good news. Anyone else in the room feel like it's incredibly hard right now to share the gospel with people in our culture? There is a, there is a hardness to the gospel that I've never seen before. And it's, it's not, I remember when I was in, in, in high school and university, I used to share the gospel, and you would expect a little pushback. You expected the gotcha questions, you know, like, oh, yeah? How do you get the dinosaurs in the ark, idiot? Right? And then you'd have like that great, oh, yeah, let's, let's wrestle with that at the cafeteria lunch table. And, oh, yeah? If God is so good, how come the crusades were so bad, moron? Right? And you'd have to, whoa, yeah, I need to think that through. I find now you don't even get there. People just don't care. They're like, God, well, maybe, who cares? Pass me the TikTok. Nobody cares. It's, it's like our entire culture has benumbed itself to death. They're all entertained into absolute indifference. And, and they feast 24 hours a day on low-grade hostility and cynicism towards Christians. They get it from the media. It's constant in the media. They get it from the school system. And so now they don't even want to have the conversation with you because they're just like, you people are all haters and bigots, and I don't care anyway because I've got shows to binge watch. It's an incredibly difficult environment to do evangelism. Is anyone else finding that? You, you feel like you're sowing your seeds, but the soil is as hard as bronze. No one is asking questions. No one is thinking about ultimate reality. No one is thinking about the past. No one is thinking about the future. It's like they've all been plugged into the matrix. And all they want to do is live well in the present. How do you share the gospel in a culture like this? How do you get through to your kids and your grandkids when they've got these things in their ear all the time, when they spend who knows how long each day looking at nonsense and insanity on TikTok? How do you even get them to think about ultimate reality when they have been benumbed into insensibility by the culture? Oh, thanks be to God for a Holy Spirit who knows how to rattle one's cage. According to the prophet Joel and according to the apostle Peter, the Holy Spirit is working a two-part plan all throughout the last chapter of the story of redemption. 
He is raising up the church and he is undermining the world. Which is why all you have to do is put one foot in front of the other. Do you remember the story of Jericho? God told the people to just walk around. Just walk around. Just walk around the city day after day. And then on the last day, walk around seven times. On the last day, we're going to ramp it up. Walk around seven times. Do you remember that? And all the alpha males in the congregation must have thought that was insane, right? All the cage Calvinists are asking like, how's that going to do anything? We're going to need cannons and guns and, and missiles. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because while you are just putting one foot in front of the other at ground level, God is at work, underground, out of sight, undermining the foundations. Such that when the trumpet blows, the walls of the city are going to come tumbling down. That's how history works. And that's how the Holy Spirit is working in this last chapter of the story of redemption. He is undermining the foundations right now, even as he continues to build up, equip, and empower the church. So all you have to do, brothers and sisters, is keep marching around the city, sowing your seeds. Don't worry right now if the soil is hard. Don't worry right now if the walls are high. The Holy Spirit has a plan for that. Just keep doing your work. You preach, you pray, you work, you walk, and the Holy Spirit will make the sun go dark and turn the moon to blood in this fallen world. He will shake the foundations and rattle the cage, giving everyone an honest opportunity to awake from their slumber, to shake off their shackles, to come to their senses, and to call upon the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Holy Spirit knows how to make that happen. The Holy Spirit came to make that happen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we have much to be thankful for again this week. And as we are thrust back into Scripture, into the story of Acts, we are reminded with the thing we should perhaps be most thankful for in this, in this world, in this fallen culture, and that is a Holy Spirit that is helping us to speak. Oh, Lord God, I pray that we would open ourselves to more of the Holy Spirit, that we would learn to turn on the taps whenever we go into any social situation where we would say, Holy Spirit, I'm walking into Tim Hortons. Open my eyes if there's someone I should see. Open my mouth if there's someone I should speak to. Bring to my mind scriptures if you give me the blessing of a conversation. Lord, I pray we would have that mindset. And Holy Spirit, I pray you'd continue to shake and undermine the foundations of every stronghold raised up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ in this culture. And I pray that with faith, with gratitude and joy. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.